Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast for another example of astronomy misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 40 for the third quarter of May 2012. The topic I'm going to talk about today is crater age dating. This is going to be much like episode 38 on radiometric dating, where this episode is going to be a very process-oriented discussion of the basics, some discussion about the complications, caveats, and limitations, and then the next episode is going to focus on what young Earth creationists claim with regards to crater age dating in order to try to argue for a young Earth and solar system in general. The first necessary part of this discussion is about the concept of relative versus absolute ages. An absolute age is when you have a number that is evidenced by some physical argument. It may or may not be an exact number. For example, when I say that the United States of America, as a formal country, is 236 years old, that is an absolute age. If I say that Earth is approximately 4.54 billion years old, even though I put that approximately in there, that's an absolute age. A relative age is when we don't have a number assigned, but we know that something is older or younger than something else. For example, my brother was born after I was, so I'm older than he. My parents were born before I was, so they're older than I. Relatively speaking, the chronology would be my parents are oldest, then me, then my brother. Or, to use countries again, Britain is older than the USA, which is older than Germany, which is older than India. You may remember this discussion a little bit from when Rachel and I were talking about radiometric dating and the geologic column in episode 38. The geologic column was a column of relative ages in rock layers and fossils, and then when radiometric dating was discovered, geologists could put absolute ages to these rock layers. We're going to take the same concept today and expand it to craters and dating the surface of other planets. Now you may be wondering why I'm devoting two full episodes to crater age dating. The reason is that craters are important, and I'm not just saying that because this is what I study. Except for Earth and the Moon, absolutely any age or relative age that you hear, read, or have heard about on any other surface in the solar system is entirely based on craters. Literally, they are the only method that we have of dating surfaces in the solar system that we haven't been to and collected samples and returned to Earth for absolute age dating. It's all craters. Now, I should note also before we get into the mechanics and concepts behind this, that craters is my field of research, and crater age dating is about half of what I do. I'll be submitting a paper on Monday to a journal that's 34 pages of just crater age dating. So, there may be a few times during this episode that I get into some of the niggling little details that aren't critical, but are thrown in there because this is what I've been studying for the past six years. I should also note that when I say crater during this discussion, I mean an impact crater, not a volcanic crater or something else. When I say planet, I also may mean moon. Basically, I mean an object that has a solid surface. With all that said, the two very basic assumptions of crater age dating is that first, craters occur randomly across the surface of a planet, and second, they occur at some potentially knowable rate that may or may not change with time. 
Therefore, the basic concept of crater age dating is that if a surface has more craters per unit area than another surface, it's going to be older. More craters means that it's older because it must have been around longer in order to accumulate those craters. And before I go any further, I should point out that there are lots of statistics that go into this kind of work and the calculation of formal uncertainties. For the sake of simplifying this discussion, insert into your head the word statistically before any time that I say older, younger, more, same, or less throughout this discussion. So the line before should have sounded to you like, statistically more craters means that it's statistically older because it must have been around longer in order to accumulate statistically more craters. And now you can see why I didn't actually say that word. Moving on. From the basic concept, we really only need two pieces of information in order to start to assign relative ages to a surface, the area of that surface and the census of the craters on it down to an agreed upon diameter. If you count the craters down to, say, one kilometer on surface A, and you do the same on surface B, and both A and B have the same area, then surface A is older if it has more craters. But now I've slid in a new complication, crater diameter. Crater diameter is important because, technically, craters can be any diameter, from micrometers to thousands of kilometers across. Due to the population of impactors, impactors being the things that actually form these impact craters when they strike planet surface, there are many more small craters that form in the same time window than a single large crater will be formed. For example, on Mars, there are about 10 craters that are about a thousand kilometers across or larger, but there are around 500 that are a hundred kilometers across or larger, and there are around 15,000 that are 10 kilometers across, but there are almost 400,000 that are a kilometer across. This is an exponential increase, and I happen to know these numbers because my doctoral work was creating the first and only global crater database of Mars that has every crater down to one kilometer in diameter and another quarter million smaller craters thrown in for good measure. From this, you can see that it wouldn't be fair if I were to say there are 10 craters on surface A that are larger than 20 kilometers across, but there are 50 craters on surface B that are larger than 2 kilometers across. It may seem at first glance, again with A and B having the same surface area, that B is older than A because it has more craters, but I counted craters down to different diameters, 20 kilometers versus 2 kilometers, so it's comparing apples with meatloaf instead of apples with apples. So back to the basic idea. One of the ways that real crater folks, like me, will determine a relative age is what we call an n-density. The n refers to the number of craters larger than or equal to a certain diameter, and the density is how many of those craters there are when you divide the area that you counted craters on into a standard. So normally that standard surface area is either per square kilometer or per million square kilometers. Also, in this paper that I mentioned that I'll be submitting shortly, it actually, or I actually, quote these n densities for 78 different surfaces in order to assign relative ages. I counted down to 50, 25, 16, and 10 kilometer diameter craters. So in this paper, I quote for all 78 surfaces that I dated, 
the number of craters larger than or equal to 50 kilometers across per million square kilometers, the number of craters larger than or equal to 25 kilometers across per million square kilometers, the number of craters greater than or equal to 16 kilometers across per million square kilometers, and the number of craters larger than or equal to 10 kilometers across per million square kilometers. From each of these, I can then rank the relative ages of these surfaces from one with the most craters being the oldest down to the one with the fewest craters being the youngest. The reason that I used N10, 16, 25, and 50 densities is something that I'll talk about in the complications of the method part of this episode in maybe about 10 or 15 minutes. The next part of this discussion is how we divide up geologic time. Geologists like to classify things and figure out stratigraphic relationships. That means that we like to know when something happened relative to something else because it helps us unravel the history of a region or a planet. We also like to classify things into epochs or epochs of time. On Earth, that's done with fossils. The Permian, Quaternary, Triassic, Archean, all of those geologic ages are based on what fossils are or are not found in those layers of rock. And to an Earth geologist, if I say that something happened in the Cretaceous, or between the Cretaceous and Triassic time, they know pretty much exactly what time period I'm talking about, and they know other stuff that happened during the time for context. What we would like to do on other planets is the exact same thing, but obviously we can't use fossils. Instead, we use craters. And now I need to introduce yet another concept, geologic mapping. For definition, geologic mapping is when you map out different types of features across a surface. For example, if I were to make a very, very coarse geologic map of the United States of America, I would use different units for large lakes, large rivers, mountains, plains, wetlands, and other things. Basically, I would be making a cartoon image of America. Although they're not geologic maps, the same basic concept is given by a map that you'd get when you visit an amusement park or a theme park or a zoo or a museum. It lays out the shape of the area, and then it has a different colored region for different kinds of attractions that you could see. For a zoo, for example, all of the places with mammals might be yellow, the reptiles might be green, and the fish might be blue. We do the same thing on other planets, although it's much harder than a zoo. We use visual data, topographic data, spectroscopic data, and all sorts of other pieces of information in order to try to figure out what's the same kind of surface and geologic unit and what's different. For example, again, if we wanted to make, say, a very, very coarse geologic map of the moon, then you would have two units, the bright white highlands and the darker maria. Those would be your two geologic units. That's your geologic map, and a young child would be able to do something like that. If you want to get a little more detailed, then you'd probably mark out some of the largest craters as another type of unit. Now, it obviously gets much more complicated than that. Once you get pretty detailed, and creating geologic maps can take months or even years. In fact, I'm involved with a group of people from around the world who are working on redoing the Mars Global geologic maps, and we're near the end of the roughly six-year process. So hopefully by this point you have the basic idea behind geologic mapping. The point of this is that once you have geologic maps, then you have distinct 
clear kinds of surfaces, much like different rock strata on Earth. You can use the same geologic principles we use on Earth, like superposition, what's on top and what's not, in order to figure out some of the relative ages. And you can use crater counts on these surfaces in order to fine-tune those relative ages. But I also need to emphasize that it's only after doing this kind of mapping that crater counting and relative ages have any meaning. I started out this episode by comparing two quote-unquote surfaces, surface A and surface B. If I hadn't mapped these out, then you would have surface AB, and you'd get some sort of average age, but that wouldn't make any sense. It would be like saying the age of mommy is 45, which happens to be the average age of myself and my mother. It's a fairly meaningless number. You have to separate the two out in order to get something that means anything. Once you have this information, you can then figure out when different things happened on other planets and lump them together into major geologic epochs. For example, on Mars, the most ancient time period is something that we call the Noachian. This is characterized by very heavy cratering and evidence for lots of water on the surface. Geologic units after that time are called the Hesperian, and we see lots of volcanic terrain and valley networks and fewer craters. The time that we're in now is called the Amazonian, and it's characterized by the fewest craters and the latest flood volcanism. So now that means that if I were to say to someone who studies Mars that this feature happened during the Amazonian, they would know exactly what time period I'm talking about on Mars, and they would know a few other things for context. If I were to say that this feature formed during the Noachian, then they would know what time period that corresponds to, and other stuff that happened during that time in order to get context. So it's very useful to have this kind of information. In other words, this stuff works exactly the same way as the geologic column does on Earth. First, you map out the regions, then determine the corresponding crater density to a certain crater diameter in those regions. Once you've done that, you can go elsewhere on the planet, determine the crater density down to that size, and from that, figure out what time period it fits into. And, just like creationists argue, the rocks date the fossils and the fossils date the rocks, it's a circular argument, according to creationists, that I disabused you of last time. But they do have a similar argument with craters that I'll probably talk about in the next episode. But, once we have those crater densities, and we have those epochs, then we can use craters in order to figure out when, in the timeline of a planet, certain surfaces fit. And the next logical question that's often more important for a press release than science is, what's the number? How old is this thing really? In order to figure that out, we need to go from relative ages to absolute ages. Instead of saying that any Noachian surface on Mars is older than any given Amazonian surface, I want to be able to say that it's at least 600 million years older than any Amazonian surface. To do that, we have to go back to the moon and Apollo. Besides proving to the world and the Soviets that we had a bigger space phallus, one of the absolute top science priorities of the Apollo missions was to calibrate the crater chronology of the moon. This means that before we ever went to the moon, scientists had geologically mapped out the surface, and they'd figure out 
when the major geologic epochs were. Then they figured out when key craters were that were on those geologic epochs and set the basement, the oldest time for those geologic epochs. That means that we needed to bring back rocks that were from those different geologic units on the moon that corresponded to those key craters. We needed to get those rocks to Earth and then use radiometric dating techniques on Earth to get absolute ages of those rocks. Once we had the ages of rocks that formed when that surface formed, such as pools of melted rock from the impact or the lava from the lunar mare, then we would be able to say that another surface that has the same, again, statistical crater density, it should also be the same absolute age. It's really that simple, and it's also that complicated. The basic idea is pretty simple. Putting it into practice is more complicated, and people 40 years later are still arguing about the lunar chronology. But since I'm already running kind of long, and we're only halfway through what's supposed to be an overview episode, we're going to move on. So by this point in the episode, I've talked about how a surface with more craters of a given size is older, and that you have to compare craters of the same diameter across different surfaces. I've also talked about how we can use these in the context of geology in order to get epochs of time on other planets, and the very basic idea of how to convert a crater relative age to an absolute age on the moon. Now, we're going to go to other planets. Whenever you hear an absolute age for a surface on another planet or moon in the solar system, it is all based on what we learned from Apollo and Luna sample return missions from our moon. To take this information to other planets, there are several factors to consider. The first piece of information is where it is in the solar system. If it's between the Sun and the asteroid belt, then we think we have a reasonable idea of what crater densities correspond to what ages. If it's inside the asteroid belt or beyond the asteroid belt, like the moons of Jupiter, then we have a worse idea because the rate of impact will be different and the role of comets is also different. That said, now we're going to ignore everything beyond Mars for this discussion. To transfer the cratering rate on the moon in order to go to other planets in the inner solar system, one of the primary factors is, again, where it is. Because of Kepler's laws, which I discussed in practically every other episode for the first 10 episodes, objects travel faster when they're closer to the sun. So, if you have an impactor that's coming from the asteroid belt and it hits Mars, statistically, it's going to hit more slowly than if it were hitting Mercury. The faster it hits, the more energy it hits with, and the larger the crater will be for any given size impactor. So, for example, if a one-kilometer impactor hits Mars, it's going to hit with an average velocity of about 13 kilometers per second. That same impactor at Mercury is going to hit with 45 kilometers per second. Kinetic energy goes as the velocity squared, so it's going to hit with nine times as much energy on Mercury as it would hit on Mars. A second complication, again based on location, is that if it's closer to the asteroid belt, such as Mars versus Mercury, it has a much closer population of potential impactors, and so it's more likely to get hit, and so it will probably have more craters for any given age than it would at Mercury, for example. 
And you have to factor in the object's surface gravity. That's going to affect how large the final crater will be. Fourth, for something with an atmosphere, like Mars or Venus or Earth, you also have to figure out at what diameter impactor the atmosphere is going to start to affect. For example, Venus has no craters that are smaller than about three kilometers across due to its tremendously thick atmosphere. Mars has millions of craters that are just tens of meters across, but it doesn't have as many as it would have if it didn't have any atmosphere. All of those things have been worked out by people much, much smarter than I am, and so we do have what we think is a reasonable idea of how to convert the lunar rate to other objects. Current estimates generally quote the uncertainty to a factor of roughly two when doing this. That may seem like a lot, but it's just like geologists are usually more interested in the relative ages. So are extraplanetary geologists. An uncertainty of a factor of two is fine for many different applications. One final topic before I get into the complications and caveats of the method is isochrons. These should not be confused with the isochrons that we talked about during radiometric dating, so pretend for this discussion as though we didn't briefly touch on them without explaining them in episode 38. The term isochron can be broken up into two parts, and from that, you can get an idea of what it means. Iso means same, chron means time. An isochron is the line of same time or same age. I talked before about n densities of craters, where you chose what diameter you want to count craters down to, and so long as you do the same diameter for all surfaces that you're dating, you're good. An expansion of this is that instead of assigning an age based on a single diameter, you do it for all diameters larger than a certain size. You fit a line to something or a curve to something. A histogram that shows bins of crater diameter on the x-axis and number of craters in each bin on the y-axis is called an incremental size frequency diagram. Size frequency because you're looking at crater size, diameter, versus frequency, the number of craters at each diameter. What researchers have done is created standardized size frequency diagrams based on areas of the moon that haven't been affected by any kind of erosion or resurfacing, or have been affected the least. These surfaces were calibrated with Apollo and Luna sample returns, so we know its absolute age. In this manner, we have a model for what a size frequency diagram should be for surfaces of a certain size or a certain age. That's an isochron. We can then scale those isochrons again, based on crater densities versus absolute ages from the moon, for Apollo and Luna samples, in order to figure out the age of any surface using a single crater diameter or a range of crater diameters. So, we actually have two methods of assigning an absolute or relative age with craters. One is looking at the sum of all craters larger than a certain diameter. The other is fitting a range of diameters to a known curve called an isochron. And I should note that I realized that that discussion was probably a little bit hard to follow, so I'll be posting a discussion or a, a primer on how these work to the show notes for this episode. Now, with all that said, there are complications to this technique. 
Hopefully one of the most obvious is just like with radiometric dating where you have to have parent and daughter particles present for it to work, you have to have craters present in order to use them to date something. The only solid surface in the solar system that we know of that has no craters on it is Jupiter's incredibly volcanic moon Io, or if you're European, Io. And so we can only get a statistical maximum age for that surface of somewhere around 50 years. Since there are no craters on it, we can't really say anything else. All other objects that we've imaged have craters, but there are regions of them that don't. Earth is a pretty obvious example. The highly active southern pole of Saturn's moon Enceladus is another. But beyond just having craters, you also need to have enough at the diameter that you want for a good statistical sample. For example, one crater present is just as unuseful as having zero from a statistics standpoint. This also is expandable to having enough at the diameter that you want. If you're trying to use craters to age date a very small lava flow on Mars, then you're not going to really be able to use 50 kilometer diameter craters. You're going to have to use something probably closer to tens of meters across rather than many kilometers across. The second complication that I want to talk about is resurfacing. Earth has around 20 known impact craters that are larger than about roughly half a kilometer or so. The moon has around 500,000 to a million craters the same size. Given everything I've discussed so far, that should mean that Earth is much, 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 much younger than the moon. What it actually means is that Earth was last resurfaced at a much, much, much more recent time than the moon. Craters can only give you an age of last resurfacing, because resurfacing is going to wipe away older craters. Sometimes the really big old craters will poke through, and we call those ghost craters, but I'll talk more about those in the next episode. Ongoing resurfacing can be a real pain to deal with, but it's mostly just a problem on anything with an atmosphere like Venus, Mars, or Earth. To deal with the problem, we often try to just use large craters because those are harder to erase, but this is a known complication. Another complication is that the different end density ages don't always agree. Around 15-20 minutes ago, I said that I'm submitting a paper where I calculated N10, 16, 25, and 50 densities for 78 different surfaces on Mars. I also used the techniques that I just discussed in order to assign absolute ages to those crater densities as well. The complication is that these often didn't agree with each other, even within the error bars. I had one example where there was an N10 age that was about 3.3 billion years old. I then, for the exact same surface, had an N50 age that corresponded to 3.9 billion years old. No, I didn't make a mistake. That's what the math shows. So how do you get ages that differ by 15%? Well, first, I think it's important to again mention that our absolute age chronology is estimated to be accurate to around a factor of 2. 15% is smaller than a factor of 2. But beyond that, the reason is that crater populations for a given surface don't always seem to follow the established functions that it quote-unquote should. There could be other processes going on that act to modify the crater population, and usually those are the resurfacing ones that I just talked about. The way this manifests is that if you use smaller craters, you tend to get younger ages. 
So, in the example, my N10 age that was 3.3 billion and my N50 age that was 3.9 billion. The smaller craters gave a younger age because what likely happened is that something acted to erase these smaller craters so that they weren't as many as they should be on a surface that's 3.9 billion years old. The bigger ones still survived, and so they gave the age that the surface more likely is. And that's how we deal with this issue. When assigning an age, be it a relative crater age or an absolute model crater age, we try to use the largest craters possible to avoid these resurfacing issues. But what also, or instead, might be going on is that the actual population of impactors that struck the surface may have changed with time, and it might be different from the standard isochrons. There is evidence that the size frequency distribution of impactors, remember that's the number of craters of a certain size, has changed with time, most notably being somewhat different before around 4 billion years ago. This means that if those isochrons were developed, say based on a surface that's 3 billion years old, then they aren't accurate for one that's 4.2 billion years old. So you can't just scale it to higher crater density in order to give an older age. This is a known complication of crater age dating, and it actually is somewhat controversial in the literature. There isn't an agreement as to whether or not this is actually true. But again, it only affects absolute ages, not relative ages. For relative ages, we're still talking about the basic idea that if you have more craters of a certain size, your surface is older. A final complication that I'm going to only describe in this episode, but go into much more detail in the next one, is secondary craters. I started out this episode by stating that one of the assumptions of crater age dating is that craters occur randomly over a surface, and the second is that it occurs at a statistically known rate. Secondary craters are neither of these. A primary impact happens when something extraplanetary strikes the surface and creates a crater. From this, stuff gets shot out that we call ejecta. If you have a large enough block of ejecta that's cohesive, as in it doesn't shatter when it flies out of the crater being formed, then when it lands on the planet, it can form its own crater. We call that a secondary crater. So, secondary craters happen at the same effective instant in time as a primary crater does, and secondary craters are near to that primary crater. This neither happens randomly with time, nor randomly across the surface. So, we have an issue. This poses a complication for crater age dating, and it's one that young Earth creationists like to bring up, and as such, I'll be talking about it in episode 41, due out next Sunday. So to recap, and bring it sort of all back together, the fundamental idea behind crater age dating is that a surface with more craters is older. You can expand this to using different diameters, to calibrating your relative scale of basic crater densities to an absolute time scale, if you have radiometrically dated when some of your key mapped craters formed, and, as with any tool, there are complications. It's usually within those complications that just like with radiometric dating, young Earth creationists will stake out their claims and that the whole technique is flawed and the entire solar system is 6,000 years old. But that's a topic for another episode. The next one, in fact. 
have no new news for this week related to previous episodes. We'll skip that and go right on to the Q&A. This episode's question for Q&A is a bit of a spoiler. So if you haven't seen the movie Prometheus and you don't want to know anything about it, even though this is covered in the trailer, skip forward about two or three minutes. The question comes from Coffee, who asked me to weigh in on some discussion that he'd read about some of the astronomy in the movie Prometheus. Among the points raised was, can you really tell where a unique star system is based on five dots in a cave painting? The answer is a resounding no, even though this was a main premise of the film in order of you know how they get to this planet where they find aliens. There are two main problems with this that I want to mention. The first is that you can designate any random pattern of five points and then find innumerable matches and stars in the sky, especially if you go down to stars that are not visible with the unaided eye. So uniquely specifying a system based on this is just wrong. Another problem is that you're talking about a 2D projection of a 3D distribution. Paintings, drawings, etc. are flat. You can't get any depth information out of it, which makes the number of matches go up even more. To those steeped in UFO lore, you may remember the Betty and Barney Hill star map issue, which really has the same problem. Betty drew in two dimensions, 2D, a 3D star map that she allegedly saw on an alien craft. And then, a schoolteacher somehow converted this back into 3D and claimed that she found, after staring at it for months on her living room floor, where the aliens were that allegedly abducted the hills. But that's actually a different episode. I just wanted to point out the issue here. So that wraps up this Q&A segment. If you'd like to submit a question for consideration, please use any of the feedback methods available, although the easiest is probably just to send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. Related to an older episode for feedback, we're going to go back to episode 34 on the Giza Pyramid Orion Correlation. Robert C. wrote in saying, Hi Stuart, you said that Graham Hancock dates the pyramids at 10,000 BC, which is not true. He accepts the conventional date, but he still claims that they are aligned to Orion's belt stars, which supposedly indicates a remembrance of an ancient lost civilization. He says this on a debunking of his claims that was aired by the BBC called Atlantis Reborn Again, which can be viewed on YouTube. So thanks, Robert, for the small correction. I was probably thinking that he was dating the Sphinx to 10,000 years. There are a few people who like to date the Sphinx to older or younger time periods based on supposedly water erosion and other stuff, but that's neither here nor there. So there's that correction to episode 34. Which means that it's time for the puzzler, where each odd quarter episode I attempt to ask a critical thinking question based loosely on the material discussed in the main segment. The scenario last time was this. Is the geologic column ever found complete on Earth? Very special. Congratulations goes into Kitsune, who sent in the answer two hours before I'm recording this episode, and saving me from a potentially embarrassing wrong answer. The answer is pretty much a yes. There are a few areas on Earth where we do have some very complete geologic columns, going from the present time back to the Precambrian or older, Precambrian being a quarter billion years ago. 
This is contrary to what many creationists claim, such as the quote from Morris and Parker in 1978 or 1987 book, Now, the geologic column is an idea, not an actual series of rock layers. Nowhere do we find the complete sequence. So, again, creationists are wrong. This week, with this episode, the main segment on crater age dating, the puzzler deals with impact doors themselves. If a one-kilometer diameter comet hits the moon, and a one-kilometer diameter asteroid hits the moon, is the crater created by the asteroid likely to be larger, the same size, or smaller than the one created by the comet? Why or why not? Try to figure out the answer and send it in to puzzler at sjrdesign.net. I'll discuss it during the next Odd Quarter episode. And now, still in the Puzzler segment, I do have a general question to all of you that I started to ask on Facebook and Twitter, where the Twitter account for the show is PseudoAstro, and you can find the Facebook page by searching Facebook for Exposing Pseudoastronomy. My question is, do you like the Puzzler? Is it worth doing? Sometimes these questions take a very long time to come up with. And for those of you who don't normally respond to the Puzzler, which is around 99.5% of you, why don't you? Again, is this worth straining in order to figure out a question for the puzzler, or should I just stop having the segment? My initial purpose for the segment was really to increase listener-me interaction in order to make this more of just me lecturing at everyone. I also thought that it would be nice to have sort of a critical thinking-based question based on the stuff so that you could see how some of this and how some of the concepts that I talk about on the show can be useful to sort of everyday life or everyday claims that you might hear from other people. But in order to keep doing it, I do kind of need to have more participation than zero or one or two people sending in responses. So, with all that said, a friendly reminder that I will be at TAM this year, although I still do need to get my plane tickets. If you have any desire to meet up, send me an email. And... Don't forget that you can find me online at podcast.sjrdesign.net, on Facebook under Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy, me personally on Twitter as Dr. that's D-R, Astro Stew, or the podcast on Twitter as Pseudo-Astro. That wraps up this topic for the 40th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sgrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website. Send an email to podcast.sjrdesign.net. Leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website. Tweet me or send me a message on Facebook. I do read every message, and I appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them, except for Emanuel Velikovsky. If you like this podcast, please write a review and rate it on iTunes. Come on, people, the U.S. iTunes store doesn't have any recent ones. Also, tell your friends and family.